Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. All right. Good morning, everybody. So this is our seventh week now in our series, Walking in the Light, Lessons from 1 John. And we're picking up right where we left off last week. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. 1 John 4, 16. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, this special morning, Baptism Sunday. Uh, We pray that throughout this service you would be preparing our hearts to appreciate um, these baptisms um, and uh, to really uh, recognize the significance of them. Um, And Lord, we, uh, we invite you now to just work in our hearts, Lord. We want to be transformed by the scriptures. Uh, We want your Holy Spirit to work in us and make us more like Jesus. And so we invite you to move. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. God is love. It's a good way to start. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For for whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. 
In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. All right, there's a lot in there. I'm going to do my best to kind of break it down to a few major ideas, a few things to really focus on. Now, if you were here last week, some of what we just read probably sounded familiar. You might remember last week I said John does have a way of repeating himself a lot in this letter. Uh, repetition is okay, right? Because sometimes we need to hear the same thing multiple times in order to really let it sink in. And what he's saying are some of the most important truths that we can ever receive. So it's worth hammering home on them. And last week, we talked about how John emphasizes the importance of both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, he doesn't actually use those words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, but those are, that's a good way of summarizing his main point. Orthodoxy means correct teaching, doctrine, right? Correct teaching about God. Last week, John said, here's how you can recognize if a spirit is from God if it recognizes Jesus as come in the flesh, right? So Jesus as come, meaning from heaven, right? So that's a way of saying Jesus is divine and comes in the flesh, which means Jesus is also fully human. Orthodoxy. And then orthopraxy is correct living. It has to do with how we behave, what we do. And correct living, John says, is loving. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. Last week, John said, anyone who does not love does not know God. Now, some people fall into the trap of emphasizing orthodoxy, but ignoring orthopraxy. And other people fall in the trap of emphasizing orthopraxy, but ignoring orthodoxy. People who only care about orthodoxy are just all wrapped up in, you know, what doctrines do you assent to? What are your beliefs? And people who only care about orthopraxy say, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. All that matters is that you're a good person. But John says both matter. Both are essential for Christ's church. And today, in this passage, John is once again emphasizing orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Right? He says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. That's orthopraxy. Correct living. And then he also says, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's orthodoxy, correct teaching, what we believe. So some of this is repetition. We've been over this. 
But John emphasizes something in this passage that we didn't really talk about last week. And that is the subject of confidence before God. John writes, This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. John knows that the people that he's writing to are expecting that a day will come where Christ will return and he will judge the world. And this is one of the things that we confess every time uh, we, before we take communion and we say the Apostles' Creed, right? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And John knows that they might have some anxiety as they think about this day. Especially considering the importance of both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? If both what we believe and what we do matters to God, that raises the question, well, do I believe rightly enough in order to pass the judgment? Have I lived correctly enough in order to measure up to God's standards? How can I look forward to this day of judgment with confidence rather than terror? And John's answer to that question is probably best summarized by two verses. These are two verses that I think are a, like a high point in the New Testament. Verses 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Perfect love drives out fear. Fear about this day of judgment. How does it do that? Well, I can think of two ways, and there's one way that I'm certain John has in mind. The second one, I strongly suspect, but we're going to emphasize the first one mainly, which is, when we understand the depth of God's love for us, it drives out our fear. John says it twice in this letter. Three beautiful words. God is love. God is love. Which means God's nature is to love. And what is love? Love is giving of oneself for the benefit of another. It's a desire to see somebody else flourish and to be willing to do what is needed in order to help make that happen. So if God is love, then God wants us to flourish in the truest sense of the word. Meaning he wants us to experience real joy, real peace, real life. If that's, what it, if that's not what it means to say God is love, then I, it doesn't mean anything, right? That's what that means. He is willing to give freely of himself in order to make it so that we might flourish. And he has. He has done that. As John already pointed out, God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God became human in Jesus and then offered his life for our sake. There's no greater sign that God is love than that. And John calls this perfect love. Why is it perfect? Well, it's perfect because it was offered without our earning it. In the passage that we read last week, 
John put it this way. He said, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God didn't send Jesus because he was up in heaven and then one day he said, well, how about that? That little group of human beings down in the Middle East finally achieved the level of righteousness that I was hoping for in order to merit me sending my son. They finally pulled it off. It's going to be tough for me to go down there, but they have earned it. No, Christ came not because we loved him, but because he loved us. Not because we were righteous, but because he is righteous. Not because we were healthy, but because we were sick. And when we realize that this is the kind of love that God has for us, fear is cast out. That frees us from fear. It sets our hearts at peace. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in ministry this week, and uh, he told me about a really remarkable moment that happened in a Bible study he was leading. He said that one of the men in the group started to cry, and he confessed that there was something that he had done back when he was an addict and uh, he couldn't forgive himself for it and he didn't think that God could forgive him either. And my friend said that it felt like the Holy Spirit just rose up in him and gave him words. And he said to that man, he said, if you had a child and that child had done something wrong, and he was sitting in the corner, and he was hitting himself, and he was saying that he was worthless and stupid and horrible. As his, his parent, wouldn't you want him to stop? Wouldn't you, you want him to realize how valuable he was and how much he had to offer? And he said, don't you realize that you're God's child? That's how God feels about you. What my friend said to that man reminded me of what John said earlier in the letter. How great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now I realize that some of this talk about God's love and how perfect it is and how it comes to us prior to us doing anything uh, correct or believing the right thing, some of us might think, well, th that makes me a little uncomfortable, you know, because um, we shouldn't get too carried away here. You know, we don't want people not to take sin seriously. We don't want to give people false reassurance. And I can sympathize with that concern. I get it, but here's what we have to remember. We cannot love God unless we first believe that God loves us. We can't do it. It can't be done. If you think that somebody, anybody, can truly love God without first believing that God loves them, 
You know, if you think that somebody can be under the impression that God hates them and yet well up love in their heart for God, you are giving human beings way too much credit. And you're also suggesting that human beings are more loving than God. Instead, we have to remember what John says. We love because he first loved us. We love God because God first loved us. Not we love God because he hated us and we were trying to change his mind. Right? We cannot really love God until we come to believe that he loves us. Now, we can fear God without believing that he loves us. And that fear might lead us to behave in certain ways that, at least on the surface, look good. But we're not really doing good until we have the right motivation. And the right motivation is love for God. But we can't really have that motivation of love for God without first trusting that he loves us. Love for God is what we need more than anything else. Right? What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How are you going to do that? Well, it starts by you first believing that God loves you with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you can't start there, then forget it. You're not going to be able to do it. You may fear God, but you won't love him. We love because he first loved us. So if we're nervous about Judgment Day or about that day when we, we die and we see God face to face, the first thing we need to do is remind ourselves of the perfect love of God. And this is the love that God has for us before we are orthodox or orthoprax. In fact, it is only this love of God that makes it possible for us to be orthodox and orthoprax. It's that love that we need to root our confidence and our peace in. Now, this whole theme of recognizing God's love for us is actually related to what might be the most confusing part of that passage that we just read. Remember the part where he talks about Jesus coming by water and by blood? Was anyone else lost there? I was lost uh, when I read that the first couple times. He says, Jesus did not come by water only, but by water and blood. What is that about? Well, remember, 1 John was written after a church split. And it was written to those who had stayed. And John was trying to reassure them that they had made the right choice and to remind them of what is true. And apparently, the people who left believed that Jesus had come by water, but didn't believe that he had come by blood. So what does that mean? Well, probably when it says Jesus came by water, it's recognizing that both the people who left and the people who stayed believed that Jesus had a baptizing ministry, that he commanded his disciples to baptize people in the name of Jesus. Everybody agreed on that. But what the people who left didn't agree with was that Jesus had come by blood, meaning that he had died for them. That he had suffered and died on the cross to be the atoning sacrifice for their sins. 
And part of the reason that they denied that is because they didn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Remember that? Last week we talked about how John was emphasizing, hey, if you want to know if a spirit is from God, that you have to find out if they believe that Jesus came in the flesh, meaning fully, he was fully God, but also fully human. Now, we, we don't know for sure exactly what these people who seceded from the church believed, but it seems likely that they were guilty of a heresy that came to be known as docetism, which was the idea that it looked like Jesus had an actual body, but he didn't really. It was, he was sort of like a ghost or a phantasm. And, and they said this because they could, just could not bring themselves to believe that God would lower himself to the level of taking on flesh, because they had this idea that flesh and, and, and body is actually somehow evil, that the material world is inherently bad. Right? But that's not what Orthodox Christianity has ever said. Orthodox Christianity says, along with the book of Genesis, in the beginning when God creates, it is good, right? The material world is good. So if you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, then you can't believe that he actually died on the cross and suffered for your sins. And John is, John is emphasizing this is so important to believe that that God really did take on flesh and come by blood, suffer for us, because it's only once you realize that that you're going to realize how much God loves you. You can't realize how much God loves you just by recognizing that Jesus came by water, that he had a baptizing ministry. You need to know about the cross. And so if you're struggling to have confidence about that day of judgment, the first thing you need to do is remember the cross. Remember that God came by blood to you that he suffered and died on the cross to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. All right. I said that there are two ways that perfect love drives out fear. Fear of judgment day. The second one, not as important as the first, but still very important. And it certainly relates to what John has been talking about. The second way, is when we practice love for our neighbors, that also drives out our fear. Now, how does it do that? Two ways. First, when we are living in love, we have a sense that we are living in God. That is the way that John puts it. He says, whoever lives in love lives in God. And when we have a sense that we are living in God, that we are living in sync with God, then we feel more comfortable about that day when God shows up, right? Because we're already living in God. But then there's a second way that practicing love for our neighbors drives out fear. Because most of our fear is inherently selfish. Think about this. If you are spending a lot of your mental energy worrying about how God is going to treat you on Judgment Day, you are spending your mental energy on you. Right? Where is your mind? It's on you. But when we love those around us, we're too busy taking care of those in need to really worry that much about that. Loving others takes us out of ourselves. It gets us out of our own heads. It frees us from our selfish fears. 
Perfect love drives out fear. And maybe this is partly why John says that his commands are not burdensome. Did you catch that line? I like that line. His commands are not burdensome. A life fixated on selfish fears is burdensome. But a life of love frees us from that. This reminds me of a quote from the pastor and author Tim Keller, who passed away earlier this year. He once wrote, Jesus came, among other things, to take the melancholy burden of living for yourself off of you. Through Jesus, you are freed from always being worried about your own needs. There's nothing more claustrophobic than that. The self-pity, the self-absorption is terrible. And then he adds this. The only way you're going to actually surrender and live for someone else is, you have to, is if you have to surrender to a king. But a king you trust and a king you know won't oppress you. And he won't. So that last part of that quote brings us back to the first point, right? We've got to realize that God loves us first. That he came not to oppress us but to free us. And once we realize that, we can actually live the life of love that frees us from the burden of living for ourselves. A life that's just filled with selfish fear. Perfect love casts out fear. May it be cast out of us. Amen? Receive the perfect love of God. And then as you receive it, reflect it. Live in God, and selfish fear will dissolve. Let's pray. Lord, we want to experience the freedom and peace that comes from knowing your perfect love and living in that perfect love. So, Lord, bring that freedom. Help us to know you as you truly are. Help us to realize what those words mean, those three simple words, God is love. Help us to see you as you truly are, revealed through Jesus Christ. And as we do, set us free, Lord, to love our neighbors well. In Jesus' name, amen. Though your mercy never fails me